I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. On today's episode, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom discussing her new book, Thick, and other essays. Nice. Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom's new book titled Thick and Other Essays has been so popular that it's already on back order only a few weeks after its release. She is a professor, a public intellectual, and a prolific writer. She's written for The New York Times, The Washington Post, Slate Magazine, and The Atlantic. In fact, Thick is her second book, and this book is a game changer. In this book, she expertly unpacks issues around race and gender and politics, and she uncovers the complex ways in which they all intersect. And she's especially brilliant in articulating the nuances of race and articulating the ways in which Black women navigate the world. These essays are beautifully and poetically written, and the book is like nothing I've ever read before. In this episode, we touch on everything from Obama's presidency to the politics of beauty, and we also talk about R. Kelly. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom. Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Jennifer. I'm happy to be here. You know, I saw you on Trevor Noah the other day. And I was a little jealous when he introduced you because he says your name so beautifully. And I thought, can I? I can't do that. I'm sorry. I don't have an accent. I'm not a special black. I get it. I get it. And I do think the accent is like 80% of it, by the way. 80% of his ability to do that is the accent. 20% of it is the dimple. So don't worry. I just think it's a magic mix that few of us could actually pull off. Yeah, don't tell him that. Don't tell him I said that. Absolutely. You you said it. I didn't say it. (laughs) So anyway, I just want to tell you, I'm going to start with, it's not flattery, it's just the truth, right? This book was so incredibly important to me and so meaningful to me because no one writes about those nuanced everyday experiences of Mm non-special, regular Mm -hmm. Black women that Mm -hmm. we all have. Those little micro cuts, those little minor cuts that we have every day, you know, Mm -hmm. being in academia or just living in the world. And so in that sense, your book was incredibly important to me and I just kind of soaked it in. Right. Um, So thank you for that. It seems like no one is interested in consuming this information Mm -hmm. about things like the beauty hierarchy Mm -hmm. that that excludes us. Right. 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 Why do you think it's important to write about those experiences? God, I mean, that's the I will be honest with you. I mean, up until. I'm still in a conversation. I spent most of the week in uh, New York, which is where my publisher is and my editor, who is also a wonderful black woman, which is why I think this book, you know, happened. I think it mattered a ton that I was working with a black woman editor. Um, And I said to her as recently as yesterday morning, I still don't get how this became a book because (laughs) I'm still like you very uncertain that anyone wants to read about or cares about our internal lives, cares about our experience of the world. I mean, knowing it intellectually, thinking it is important intellectually and consciously is something different than how you feel about it, right? And I just kept saying to her, I still don't get it. And she goes, it's all right. I think it's actually good that maybe you don't get it. But it was important to me in conversations with her and with myself about whether or not I should even take this project on, it was important for me to say whether anybody takes us seriously or not, we sure as crap should take ourselves seriously. And if I was not going to do that with all of them, you know, my training, all of the things invested in me to give me the skill set to figure out precisely these kinds of things, if I wasn't going to take us seriously 
as subjects and as agents and very few other people were going to. So if nothing else, it was about, I think on a personal level, it was about me taking myself seriously. And then on like a professional creative level, it was about saying, no, we, we, we are still a part of this conversation. We still exist and our existence matters, not just to us, although it certainly does. But I really do fundamentally believe that there's almost nothing to which knowing more about Black women won't help us figure out some other, you know, phenomenon or problem. And this was about, you know, walking my talk. I want to talk about the role that the personal essay Mm -hmm. plays in this, because you talk about that in the beginning about how, you know, someone said something to the effect that the personal essay was dead or some such nonsense. Uh uh So, I mean, what role does that play in telling the stories of Black women? You know, historically, Black women have been excluded from all of the formal canons, whether that's uh, academic, you know, um, uh, research, but also from literature, pop culture, politics, science, history. What some of my uh, friends who do like historical archival work talk about are the hidden archives, about how difficult it is that what you have is this cumulative problem, that because Black women have been historically excluded from the quote-unquote formal archives, those are things like whose papers get saved, right, by a library, for example, or whose speeches get recorded for posterity, whose images are saved and archived and labeled by important organizations like the Smith Smithsonian or, you know, Time Magazine or something, that because historically we were excluded from those formal archives, when a time, a moment arrives, like hopefully we are in now, where scholars and writers and thinkers want to talk about the history of Black women's work and lives, we can't rely on the formal archives. And so they talk about doing this work of like our hidden archive. And one of the things they often look for are first person narratives from those women, because those are, you know, some of the few um, avenues we have to understanding the trajectory of our lives. So they look for things like, you know, letters between family members or friends. They look at church programs, which I find very fascinating as a form of archive of Black women's work. And so the essay, I think, is just sort of the modern iteration of that. The first person or personal essay says a lot about the personal, but also says a ton about the political, which is something that feminism writ large has said for quite some time, but that I think becomes even harder to excavate, even harder to find when it comes to Black women's stories, not just because we are excluded from the formal archives of history and culture, but because of how our lives are set up politically and economically, Black women just have so little time to document our own histories. And it is increasingly clear that we're the only ones who are going to do it. But we are taking care of so many social institutions. We're taking care of so many people. We are living with and managing so many social problems just in our daily lives that the extra burden of taking on, you know, producing our own intellectual histories become very difficult to do. But one thing we can do and often are able to do is that we're able to speak to our own experiences. Um, And so I think because the threshold of entry into the personal essay is lower Right. You don't need to be a librarian, you don't need to be an academic to do that. And especially with technology now, you don't even need formal gatekeepers like magazines and editors. We can express ourselves with fewer levels of translation by others, which makes our personal essays, I think, particularly powerful as a political tool for understanding our world. And so when people are talking about the personal essay boom is over, I'm like, well, maybe it should be over for some people. Frankly, I don't know that I want too many more essays about white dudes 
you know, uh, uh, exploring and falling in love with a 20 year old girl. Like maybe for them, that essay boom should end. Um, But for many others of us whose stories do not get that same sort of attention and investment, the personal essay remains critically important. Yeah, when I started reading your book and I read that, that I was, you know, crestfallen, but you have just helped me, you saved me because I was like, you know, I have so many personal stories myself that I personally want to tell. And there must be other black women out there who have, you know, Mm -hmm. similar experiences and they want people to, you know, if they don't want to write them, they at least want to read about them to connect and, you know, feel valued. Right. Right. I mean, especially about the stories about and this is something that I have never ever read about, but it's such a huge part of my own life Mm -hmm. about the lonely experience of being a Black academic or a Black person in academia. Right. That is something that no one ever writes about. And you explored that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I connected with was this idea that when we reach a certain level, right, Mm -hmm. of of status, of achievement, or, you know, we're called out for having some extraordinary talent. Like for you, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, writing and being, you know, an intellectual and public thinker. And, you know, for me, it was, and I, I, I'm going to talk about myself. I'm sorry. Personally, Considering the theme, I think we're right on track. You should. Yeah. I, I went to school. I, w- I was a pianist, a classical pianist oh, all of my life. And I went to music conservatories. Mm-hmm. And I think a music conservatory is probably the, mm-hmm. the widest academic space that you can find. Right. I can imagine. Yeah. And I, and so I connected with that idea of when you reach that as a regular black person, not a special mm-hmm. black person, the need for people to assign something special to you. Right. Right. Like you, you have this extraordinary thing or I find you likable because mm-hmm. you're, you know, Haitian, you know, right. or something or something special. Right. And I was like, no, I'm just from Tennessee. I, you know, I'm right. not. <laughs> <laughs> and then just, you know, and then you could see the disappointment in their faces. Yeah. Right? right. When you did not take the bait, like even if you didn't have it, but you didn't take the bait to want mm-hmm. to be that. Right. right. And I found that really interesting. I loved actually doing it too. I love seeing that disappointment. Oh, I do too. I, I mean, I, I mean, I am yes, I embrace it. Let me just be very clear because there is something about what it reveals, um, and something that they themselves have never considered. And I'm not, you know, I'm not delusional enough to think that I have those moments and they then go on and think about it. Very few people have the sort of ability to be self-reflective enough to, to you know, parse those types of moments for themselves, especially when they might discover something about themselves they do not like. Um, but the perverse part of me really enjoys saying, no, absolutely, I'm I'm so regular. I'm just from a girl from North Carolina. And I enjoy that moment. One, I think it validates me. I think there's something to saying to myself, my own psyche, that, hey, I'm going to defend you, right? I'm not going to let people separate you from me. I'm not going to let them compromise our authenticity. And I think there is something about yourself knowing that you will protect and defend yourself. That just when you do it in those little small ways, those little small conversations, I think they add up over time. And I think that's really part of our self-esteem and the way we value ourselves. It's one of my forms of self-care, frankly, that I just won't let these micro interactions redefine me, even if it's only for a moment. And so I really enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. You know, but the thing about that is, is that, you know, you are Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, right? Mm -hmm. You have this big platform, you're a celebrated writer, you know, with this new book that's sold out, by the way. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. It's doing well. And so, you know, that gives you the room to do that. Right. And you talk about the hierarchies of race a lot in your book. And but, you know, the, depending on the type of black person you are, mm-hmm. you are granted, you know, different avenues. Right. Mm-hmm. And it reminds me of this other personal anecdote. So we were having this party at my house a few months ago mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. you know, someone came to the door 
Now, you know, at our parties, you know, it's pretty casual. And, you know, sometimes our guests, they open the door for, for other guests. Right. So one of our guests, you know, this white guy, you know, he, he goes to answer the door and he's expecting it to be, you know, one of his buddies or someone else who was coming to the party. Uh-huh. You know, but uh-huh. when he got to the door, it was a grocery delivery person. And now you and I both know that, you know, these are typically brown people and black people. And, yes. you know, in this case, it, it was a woman, a black woman who was delivering the groceries. Mm-hmm. So, so the guy who answers the door, he says nothing. He turns away and he just left her standing at the door once he realized, you know, who she was. So, you know, his demeanor changes in a second from warm and welcoming to treating her as someone, you know, not worthy of being seen or, you know, not worthy of interacting with. You know, so I get to the door, you know, to try to save this interaction. You know, I just wanted to wanted to save her from, you know, another micro cut in her life, you know, another demeaning interaction where she was treated with less respect than she deserved, which, you know, I'm sure she gets right. all the time. Yeah. Right. You know, but, you know, by the time I get there, it's too late. You know, when I get to the door, you know, her head is cast down and she doesn't make eye contact with me, you know, but that that interaction stayed with me for so long. Yeah. And it's also so disappointing. Uh, I feel often that I have to hold both of these ideas about my social environment at the same time, which is that I absolutely have friends, non-Black friends who value me and like me and et cetera. But I also have to hold a place in my mind for allowing that that may not say anything at all about how they see Black people writ large. Like there's no way that you can fully see me and not have seen the Instacart woman. Right. That somehow those things have to be a little at odds. And it's always very disappointing. I, I've had, uh, you know, similar moments when it, it's, you know, a reality check and a gut check for me. Go, Oh, oh, OK. Yeah. Even though I'm just a regular black, they have made some sort of exception for me. Um, and this is, you know, the evidence I see it, for example, in my work a lot when I see my colleagues treat most of the um, or often black people in the academy are disproportionately represented in administrative jobs like, you know, the the department admin, you know, the um, the custodial staff, food services, et cetera. And there's something about when you're on a campus, as many of us are with something like single digit black professoriate on the campus. When I walk into the cafeteria or I interact with somebody at food services, they see me, I see them, and we recognize each other, right? And there are these great moments. And then I can be with my non-Black, especially often my white colleagues, and you can see their confusion that I am having this interaction, you know, with the cashier or the, um, listen, some of my best friends in the department are the custodial staff, right? Because they're disproportionately Black women, and they can be the only Black women I see all day. And so we talk all the time. I know their kids. I know how, <laughs> I know how work is going. And you can see, I have seen before some of my colleagues be very taken aback um, by it. And, and, and I, like you, go, you know, have tried before to try to save the interaction, but there really isn't much you can do other than hopefully being an exception uh, to that for, for the other Black people that I engage with. Yeah. Yeah. You know, another thing that I love about your writing is that there seems to be this audience of consumers of Black content who want mm-hmm. to consume big moments of Black pain, right? Mm-hmm. Like those 
big, big, you know, the right. Sandra Blands or surviving R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, and I like that you don't take that bait, but I wonder if there was ever pressure for you to sprinkle a little more black pain, like oh, you know, those big operatic moments in your work. Are you kidding me? All the time. I mean, just this week alone. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> so part of the thing that happens, you know, when a book like this comes out, part of promoting is what we call serials. This is where you'll republish an excerpt of the book in a mass publication, generally a magazine. And they always edit it for length, you know, or something like that. And so you're working with a new set of editors with whom you yourself don't have a personal relationship, right? So they take your published work. They're trying to slice off a piece of it for their audience. And these conversations often go something like this. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you could just talk more about right here where you said, you know, insert trauma, you know, that you were uh, beaten, sexually molested, pulled over, arrested, someone died. Like if you could just if you could just expound on that. And fortunately, again, I'm in a position where I don't have to do that to get access to publication. Right. And I have made a deliberate choice that I will not do it. Um, Some of this is about having like some really kick butt friends. My friend Roxanne Gay has a career that has been all about her drawing these really clear boundaries because she writes so often about her personal trauma. And she and I had a conversation before this book came out because I knew it was my most personal thing that I had done. And I was not totally comfortable with that. And I remember her saying to me, you know, you tell people what you will and will not talk about. And she's like, and if they bring it up, hang up. (laughs) She's like, hang up or walk away. And having that permission from another black woman was hugely important. And she's right. For those of us who have earned, and I want to be clear about that, because I realize not all black writers have this freedom. If you want to be seen, if you want to be published, if you are new and starting out and don't have a whole lot of other sort of credibility to draw on, we often have to mind that pain to get published. But if I can be an exception to that, to model a different way to engage with black women, that is not all about us standing there. And I call it bleeding on the page for white readers. Right? I have no desire to do that. And I push back hard against people who want me to. But all of the time, I mean, it happens all of the time. Yeah, but the difference is, is that wanting to do it and being pressured to do it or needing right. to do it. Right. Exactly. If you want to control your narrative, if part of your art and your creativity is this moment of vulnerability and honesty and you want to write about it, absolutely. But one of the things that has usually happened in these cases that I'm talking about is I have written the thing I intend to write, right? I'm not going to expound upon that to make it more um, emotionally um, resonant for you. And, And that is often, you know, that thing where they want to rewrite you through editing or rewrite you through the editorial process. That's that way that we tend to be prodded and forced into a traumatic first person narrative, whether we meant to write one or not. Yeah. You know, but the references to the beauty hierarchy and not necessarily the beauty hierarchy in the way that Naomi Wolf explores Mm -hmm. it, you know, in her book, The Beauty Myth, you know, and I, and that's important, you know, it has merit Mm -hmm. and that should be explored, but it does not, it does not include us, you know, Mm -hmm. us as black women Mm -hmm. and no one talks about the fact that it doesn't include us. Yeah, I, you know, when writing that, I'd had sort of like pieces of that essay uh, floating around for a while, you know, in my notes or something like that for a while. And I remember when I, you know, once I sat down to sh- try to shape it into something formal for this volume, I remember turning to my research assistant and going, I must be missing something, right? I mean, I literally, I pulled every bit of sort of previously published work that I could find on these ideas because I kept going, there is no way that this whole exists like I'm seeing it. Um 
And then I, you know, finally came to the conclusion that's not to say that nobody's ever written about it before, but it certainly wasn't central to any of our conversations about beauty. And especially considering our moment in time when I feel like things like social media and popular culture are just doubling down on certain forms of beauty as being feminist or, you know, um, a feminist ideal of beauty. Um, I was actually stunned that there was not more conversation about how conflicted that beauty hierarchy is and what that does to people, especially when it was so clear to me in my own life, right? I thought, surely there's some feminist literature, surely there's this conversation, and I just have missed it. And that was one of those like really surprising things to me working on the book. Yeah, that's another one of those things where it's everywhere. Everyone knows it. Everyone sees it, but they get mad if you talk about it. Exactly. There was, there is like this sense of like real resistance. I mean, um, you know, this essay is an example of one of those where, you know, I can be just as, uh, I think, challenging for sisters to read as I am for um, white readers or non-black readers. Right. Because my thing is we are sometimes even though our complicity is different. I was thinking about things when I was writing this essay. I was thinking about all of the sort of youth driven culture online with like self-care. Right. Or, you know, love yourself, girl, which is this, you know, doing this really performative thing where, you know, we do our makeup tutorials. We post nudes as being part of being, you know, uh, liberated and freed from the sort of racist ideas of our of our bodies. We're doing all of this. You know, we're uh, accepting and promoting the idea of sort of a unique black beauty culture. And I thought, well, yeah, that stuff, though, is as potentially damaging as the other stuff. And I realized you couldn't say that. Right. We only have one acceptable narrative right now, and that is Fenty, Fenty, good, good, um, <laughs> self-care, 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 hashtag, I look good today, thick, 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 hashtag, right? And as important as all of that was, I thought that's also, however, coming from a place, and if we're going to be you know, really good critical thinkers of our own experiences, I didn't think that should be off the table for critiquing. Yeah, there's this one part in the book that you write about, which is really important. And another thing that isn't written about a lot is that uh, the people like us, and I think we grew up kind of around the mm-hmm. same time where, you know, this busing, right. you know, we yep. were busts, yep. we were suddenly in these schools with lots of white people. Mm-hmm. And it dawned on me that that was the time that I realized it too, when I was bused mm-hmm. mm-hmm. to an environment where, you know, beauty had a different definition than the one I had grown up with. Mm -hmm. And the busing was a big part of that. Yes. And I still think that we're only just beginning to excavate that. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. One, because it has to do with women and we just don't take seriously like our coming of age stories. But I have already, I mean, the book's only been out two weeks and I've got dozens of letters from black women, like you were saying, who grew up in that time who are going, oh my God, I clearly remember realizing, you know, that that's what beauty was and how different that was from the block I walked on to go home, you know. And those are those years when you are, are defining yourself. You're doing all of that identity work, not just, you know, who you'll be, but, you know, your sexual identity, your racial identity, your class identity. We're forming all of that during those difficult preteen, teen, and adolescent years. And for young men, we have these wonderfully nuanced coming of age stories about their exposure to like, you know, what they learned about how to be a man, et cetera. We've even had a really good, you know, couple of years, I think of some wonderful ones from black men, including like dealing with things like sexuality. I'm thinking both books and things like Barry Jenkins' movie Moonlight, which are just fundamentally a coming of age stories for black men. 
And frankly, I didn't see a coming of age story for black women and girls that looked like what I had experienced. And I think one of the reasons why we don't talk more about how harmful or painful, not maybe just harmful, but painful that beauty hierarchy is, is because it's so deeply embedded in the internal lives of young black women. And we just don't take young black women's stories seriously enough. Because of course, the school is where you learned about norms that don't come from your family, right? That's actually what school is set up for. It's set up to give you skills and ideas and cultural ideas that kind of separate you from the things that you learn at home. And based on where you went and what the you know, the time period and how you went to school, part of that was learning what it meant to live in a white world. And a fundamental part of living in the white world was agreeing with white people about who was and was not beautiful. Yeah. Or at the very least, learning about it, right? That's right. That there was a counter narrative, right? And that not only was their narrative counter, but their narrative was probably ultimately more important than whatever narrative we had gotten at home. And the most painful thing about that experience to me is that, so for me, I grew up in an all-Black neighborhood, went to an all-Black mm-hmm. school until I was bust in junior high. So for me, I think one of the most interesting and, and painful and memorable things was seeing the Black boys that I'd grown up with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm going to say? Mm-hmm. Shift, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yep. One week they liked, you know, a little booty on a brown girl. And the next week they were coveting the uh, blonde cheerleader. Yeah. Watching that happen in real time. Yes. Yes. I, I, I remember that too. Yep. You just summed up me ages, you know, thir- <laughs> 13 to, you know, yep. the rest of my life. So, <laughs> Oh, I totally. And it is, I don't know that people fully understand how, I mean, again, these are those years where the early sexual awakening interactions that you have during those years are just so foundational to your sense of self. And watching that happen, uh, yeah, is, is, is very damaging and confusing because, again, we sound so much alike, but you also have these narratives, right, coming out about, well, you shouldn't be worried about little boys anyway, right? So we weren't even supposed to be worrying about them boys anyway to, oh no, you know, and at school and your social life, having a boyfriend was, you know, a big deal, which has its own issues with, you know, heterosexism, et cetera. But that was an important part of your social, um, you know, your socialization. And so you've also got all these competing narratives that one, we shouldn't care about what those little boys are doing anyway to, no, you should absolutely care and you should care a ton to also watching in real time your own value decline. We could watch it happen. And some of what I think gets characterized as, you know, Black women's anger or bitterness about Black men or something is, I think, just fundamentally about those original traumas and pains and because we don't have words for them. Yeah. And so this brings me to my other favorite part of the book where you talk about Leslie Jones, the comedian. Mm And you talk about how she uses the pain of being undesired and the pain of being single as a punchline. Right. She uses that in her comedy. And, you know, a lot of comedians are self-deprecating. No, but for some reason, for me, for me, this feels different when she does it. You know, she jokes about being single and about, you know, being undesired. And for some reason, when she does that, it makes Mm -hmm. a lot of people Mm -hmm. uncomfortable and it makes me uncomfortable. So uh, People Magazine you know, they came out with one of their lists. You know how they come out with, you know, the sexiest man alive or the sexiest the sexiest woman alive. For some reason, one year they had the sexiest teacher alive. <laughs> 
And, you know, I don't know why they would need that. But anyway, um, so Leslie Jones, she picks up on the story and she starts to flirt with this sexiest teacher alive on Twitter. And, you know, she says, are you single? Do you want my phone number? Mm-hmm. You know, and people are watching this kind of unfold and they're treating it as yeah. kind of a cute joke. Yeah, that's one of right? her things, by the way. Yes, I've seen her do it certainly with others. But it's painful yeah. for me to watch because when I see those interactions, I see the realness in that. You know, mm-hmm. she's she's doing it as like a, a punchline or as comedy, mm-hmm. but I see her pain as a black woman yep. in those reactions. Like she was serious. Like mm-hmm. she was seriously flirting. She yeah. was not just, you Certainly. know, doing. It's one of those jokes that we call um, where my people are from is uh, we, those jokes that people float to see how serious you are. They're like, it's a joke if you plan, but I'm serious if you take me seriously kind of joke, you know, <laughs> and. And yeah. yes, she was floating it as one of those kind of quote unquote jokes. If he had given her an overture, I suspect she'd have been quite serious about the flirting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but people treated that as a cute story, right? Yeah. And they ignored the pain of black women in that story. And the fact mm-hmm. that, you know, we are typically simple. We're the last ones to get married. And, the, you know, right. they ignored the, the serious underlying current mm-hmm. of that, of those interactions. Yep. Yeah. One of the things about Leslie Jones is coming out when I went back and watched a lot of, of her stuff to prepare for writing this essay, um, just to, I wanted to make sure it was the theme that I thought it was and that kind of thing. And I cannot tell you how often I had to pause her stuff. I mean, honestly, I can't, I cannot consume her work. And this is not about whether or not she's funny. I can't personally consume it as funny because of that, because I clearly am, I think for her, her shtick, you know, her thing that she does to work, you have to share a casual disregard for black women that I just can't do. And so all of her punchlines to me are on herself, which I know is a form of comedy, but watching a black woman do it and knowing who's consuming it was so hard for me. I remember watching the YouTube clips and I almost had to pause almost every like 90 seconds. I just, I I, I couldn't even consume it. That pain, um, you know, and then I just get so angry about how almost nobody sees it as such. Nobody sees it as such. You know, I thought about some of the great comedians and not saying that she's on this level, but, uh, you know, I could think about something like Richard Pryor, whose whole comedic career was built on, especially in his later years, dealing with things like his addiction, right, and his run-ins with the law and setting himself on fire. I mean, he had, I mean, he had these horribly painful routines that we were able to somehow understand as both funny and traumatic. And it really actually breaks my heart that we don't see someone like Leslie Jones's comedy the same way. Yeah, you know, people don't want to acknowledge the pain of, you know, the blackness. Yes. And, you know, being at the bottom of the hierarchy, the yep. beauty hierarchy in that economy because everybody is complicit except black women. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> even black women, we're complicit, you know, to some extent, yeah. but like everyone is complicit and to admit that is to indict yourself. Right. I get so many letters about um about that essay, particularly from white women who seem to want to explain to me, right? They do feel this personal conviction, especially those who I think have identified as feminist. Um, I had a wonderful interaction at my book party with, you know, just such a woman um, who's like, could not wait to corner me to say, you know, about that essay. And by this time, you know, I was celebrating the release of the book. I I probably had more than one or two cocktails by that point in the night. And uh, so I'm usually much better about not actually rolling my eyes. I can do it (laughs) mentally, but not, you know, (laughs) but by that point in the night, it was gone. You know, the whole mask is gone. It was over. I rolled my eyes and I told her, I can save you some time. Do you want me to tell you what you want? 
want to say, because I'd heard it that many times. And it was some version of that. Like, I read it. I think I get it. But I'm fundamentally uncomfortable. Make that better for me. Right. Make me feel better about that. And I go, oh, no, I don't do the second part of that job. I only do the first part. Um, (laughs) I am not trained at all for the make you feel better part about it. Um, But I do feel like white feminists, women readers in particular, struggle with that one a lot, precisely because I suspect it is the first time that they have ever considered that they are benefiting from a form of power that they as feminists especially, had wholesale ascribed as being bad, right? Like, no, I don't participate in the white beauty hierarchy because, you know, I don't dye my hair. I'm not trying to be attractive in this white conventional way. And I go, well, yeah, that's though about white feminism, right? That's about your relationship vis-a-vis other white women. Whether you participate in that at all with them has nothing to do with how you benefit from that anyway, as it relates to black women. And I think that is very uncomfortable for them. Yeah. You know, it's funny because your analysis of the Obama presidency is that at a larger national level Mm -hmm. about his success in part being because he made people Mm -hmm. feel better about themselves. Yes. Yes. That, you know, I was trying to reconcile a lot with that essay. I had written, you know, a part of that a, a little earlier on. It was it had been, I think, the week after maybe the Trump election or something. Uh, you know, they asked me to respond or engage with ta Coates in the Atlantic. And so that was the first part of it. But I was never completely satisfied with my ending point in that original essay. And I think I hope I think I started to try to resolve that in this one, which is that you know, we kept trying to figure out how could some of the same people who voted for Barack Obama also vote for Donald Trump? There was a a moment where I just had this epiphany where I thought, oh, well, they must share the same motivation. What could that possibly be? Um, And I think that that motivation is voting for either of those was a projection for many white voters of their ideal selves and that actually those ideal selves were not in conflict, that you could absolutely want the thrill, the visceral thrill of power and domination that you get from Donald Trump is actually probably the same impulse that one got from thinking that they were morally superior for having voted for Barack Obama. And that in the end, the election of either of those men said way more about us than it did about them as either candidates or people or politicians. So I think another part of his success, obviously, is that he is what you refer to as a special black mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. He's not he's not he a regular guy. Nicely. That's right. I mean, you know, we're now looking ahead at 2020, which God help me. And, uh, you know, this looks like this is going to be a mix of um, at least early candidates that are going to be probably some of the most racially diverse that we've ever had. We're looking at there are probably going to be one, if maybe not two black women. I don't know. I say I want to campaign around Stacey Abrams like we've got around, you know, Kamala Harris, for example. But, you know. Uh, there might be a Latina in the mix. We might have, I mean, you know, this is looking pretty interesting. And I looked around though at that list and thought, yeah, but none of them had what I think fundamentally mattered most for Barack Obama, which was that he represented the special blackness that ultimately makes sort of mass white culture most comfortable, right? Um, uh, It was extremely important, I think, to his narrative with white voters that he had not been born into the Black American trauma 
of, you know, slavery, reconstruction, post-reconstruction, Jim Crow, um, and inequality. I think, I think that any Black candidate comes out of that sort of traditional, you know, regular Black narrative has a totally different path to gaining white voters' trust than did Barack Obama. But I want to talk to you about, about his privilege, because mm-hmm. there's some privilege that comes to being a special Black person. And that allowing you to do things like code switching because you talk Mm -hmm. about in the book like you're discarding code switching altogether Mm -hmm. but i think you can only do that and i could be wrong but Mm -hmm. once you have a certain level of success absolutely right yes you know because some people might still need that code switching listen if some of my black students came to me talking about they were done code switching i would shake them are you kidding me (laughs) like yeah let me be perfectly (laughs) i mean i may not have put as fine a point on it as i needed to that what i was exercising was a marginal privilege and that i'm doing it deliberately to point out the fact that other black folk don't have that privilege and should right It, it is not about oh look at me be special and flaunt you know white expectations of my performance of black no 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 I'm saying that if you see how freeing it is for me to be able to lay down that type of performance, then maybe hopefully we'll think more critically about the tax we're putting on other black folk who can't do it. Right. You absolutely if you need to perform in the labor market, perform in school, if you need to be safe in your community from like police surveillance and intervention or the, uh, you know, or the lay police surveillance and intervention of your white neighbors or whatever, whatever it does that keeps you safe. And that's fundamentally what code switching does, by the way. It, it, it provides us a modicum of safety as we navigate white spaces and white people and white people's expectations about us and their fear of us. That's what that is. But it is a huge huge, I think, tremendous tax on us, even as I value and I do value the creativity and intellectual excellence that is code switching that Black folk created. I mean, it's a marvelous cultural tradition. We are fundamentally, you know, multilingual within our own culture and our own society and our own nation. And I think it is fabulous. It is also, however, an extreme tax. The tax being on those who become good at code switching, right? The tax for those people is that I think it can overwhelm us emotionally and cognitively to have to do it constantly because you're constantly having to read the dynamics in a room to know when you should be code switching, right? And that's taxing. But I also think it is a tax on people who never quite learn how to code switch and how much that negatively impacts their life. So on many levels, I mean, I just sort of want to, in my sort of flouting of the idea of I no longer want to code switch in that way, is really me just trying to point out how difficult that is for Black folk writ large. I mean, what it really boils down to is which cost do you want to pay? The emotional cost to yourself, or do you want to pay in possibly, you know, lost opportunities, right? That's right. I was just having the same conversation with my niece who just graduated from college and, you know, she's going into the professional world, you know, me having already been there, you know, we started to talk about code switching, you know, and my advice to her was, you know, to not let anyone shame her for using the tools that she needed to use to meet her goals, you know, within reason, of course. Right. But, you know, code switching is an example for for me of our resourcefulness. You know, I'm still uneasy about it as a tool. And I'm not really sure why. It is one of the problems we have as a, you know, what we inherited from Western society, which is this, we don't have a good language for talking about the difference between the individual actions people have to take to survive versus 
what has made them have to do those things to survive, right? Like, so we can absolutely critique the fact that we shouldn't have to ask this of Black people without condemning Black people who have to do it, right? That's the fine, and it is a fine, admittedly a fine line. And it's one, that's the line I was just trying to even walk with you by saying, no, this is about my individual action, some individual status that I have accrued. And it says nothing about the fact that the problem isn't with Black folk who code switch, it is with white people who require it of us, right? And that is a very fine line. And we just don't always have a really good language of talking about those differences. One way hip hop has historically done it actually pretty well, which is don't knock the hustle, but you should absolutely knock the hustle man. We can absolutely say, listen, that person's doing what they got to do to survive while also saying it is extremely effed up that this is how we have to survive and focusing attention on that. What made this our hustle? What made it so crucial for us to take on the black tax of constantly modulating ourselves, not just to even get ahead, but like to just be okay. You know, striving and mobility is one thing, but we have to do it just to even be okay, to just be left alone, right? <laughs> to just maintain, we have to do it. And yeah, and it's, it is tough. I think we know that instinctively. I think black people especially know that instinctively, but it can be hard for us to talk about it in a way that doesn't make people feel bad. It doesn't make people feel guilty. Right. Um, like, again, like a, a lot of the young people in my life where I'm like, I get it. I get what your friends are even saying to you. I get what the social costs are to you. I also know you're going to look up in 15 or 20 years and maybe regret the trade offs you made because, you know, you didn't want to be viewed one way or the other because you did what you had to do to kind of survive. But that's like a real conversation that I think we used to do a better job of having in our community. I don't know, I might be idealizing like, you know, pre-Jim Crow Black society, but I feel like we used to be better at that. Yeah. Like we used to talk about it more. Yeah. No, maybe you're right. And I wonder why we don't talk about it more. Right. Yeah. So speaking of hip hop culture and pop culture, you wrote in one of the essays about R. Kelly. You know, one of my favorite lines in that essay was, Black men are too oppressed to also oppress. And that's really powerful. I mean, I think one of the most depressing things about watching that R. Kelly documentary was then watching people get really angry about the documentary, but in defense of R. Kelly. And I don't know, I was just really dismayed. I mean, I thought, you know, how do we end this cycle of protecting people like R. Kelly because it's the job of Black women or the job of Black girls to protect them from being oppressed. You know, how do we get out of that cycle? So I think what we think we're doing is that we're linking our oppression to theirs. Um, But sometimes what we are linking is our safety to their oppression. And that's not the same thing. Like our oppressions are linked, right? There's just, I don't think there's a reality where we free Black women and don't also free Black men. But I don't know that when we are doing that kind of work of like protecting R. Kelly from the man, right, um, by throwing Black women and girls under the bus, I don't think we're linking our oppressions in those instances. We're linking our safety to their oppression. And that's actually very different and actually a type of violence that I think we're doing to ourselves and to each other. One, the people, your comrades, the people who you link your oppression to are never supposed to ask that sacrifice of you. Right. If they were really your comrades, if they're really in the struggle with us, and I just use that word in the sense because I think it says something more than like ally or something. It just means usually when a comrade, it means what we're saying is, I think that my ship rises and falls with your ship. Right. And so if that's the relationship we think we have with black men, like as a category, they're not even supposed to ask that of us because that's what comrades do. Comrades say, I'm not going to ask you to make that kind of sacrifice for me. 
even if you want it to, right? So if that, that, that would be linking our oppressions. When we both do it and Black men say we're supposed to have done it, oh, well then no, that's about you saying I'm trading my safety for your oppression and that's not a comrade. That's, you know, that's an abusive relationship, right? We have more language to talk about protecting Black men than we do language to talk about protecting Black women. Like I even just think about our, you know, the language we have in like our culture and in our songs and the colloquial way we speak to each other. We've got tons of language about how Black women need to lift themselves up. You know, again, self-care, love yourself, Black is beautiful, et cetera. A lot of language for what we're supposed to do for other people. we got a whole vocabulary about that and a very limited vocabulary about what other people are supposed to do for us. Yeah. So who do you write for? I'll I'll tell you why I asked that question, because Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about the woman, you know, who was delivering the groceries. And all I wanted to do was, first of all, Mm -hmm. give her a big tip and give, you know, tell her Mm -hmm. (laughs) everything's okay. And then I wanted to give her a copy of your book. Right. (laughs) But, but, you know, to just let her know that these stories are out there, but she probably won't be in your audience. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that fair? You know, who Mm -hmm. who do you write for? Who do you want to read? Yeah. So. You know, I think there's a difference to who I would like to imagine my audience. And then there's the reality of I use a certain kind of language, you know, elegant style and prose is all about making assumptions about the knowledge that your audience brings to the reading. And by virtue of who I am, there's a whole lot of inequality baked into that. Right. So I'm assuming an awareness of something or even an interest in something like my job as a professor or an academic, which, frankly, a lot of people are not interested in. And shouldn't be. We're like 4% of the population and I totally get it, right? I'm not a stand-in for all Black women's experiences of work or living, et cetera. But then there's like the needy, you know, Black girl in me who's like, no, no, no. I'm talking about all the Black girls and I love you. Be my friend. Um, (laughs) That's inside, right? That's my thing. And so I still love the idea that, you know, I want sisters in a beauty shop and on the block and et cetera to see it too and to find something in it, even if it means sort of like tossing out, you know, some of the parts that don't resonate with them quite as much. And I also just never want to make the mistake that the sister in the beauty shop on the block couldn't understand it or couldn't relate. So ideally, who I hope I write for, I was uh, telling you again about um, like Miss Yvette in the office. Um, she actually just left us, but she was our um, our office cleaner for uh, several years. And, you know, I got to know her and her girls and et cetera. I love the idea that Miss Yvette will pick up that book and give it to her daughters. And that would be who I had been writing it for. Um But I also love that it is clearly resonating with, as I like to say in like scary air quotes, black women of a certain age. (laughs) 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 My peer group, you know, those of us who did live the like post busing generation, because that is something about that. Right. That's clearly part of my story and what I'm drawing on that probably will not resonate with like a 19 year old right now who's now going to schools that are so resegregated that they may as well have been pre-Jim Crow schools, right? Like, So I get that some of that is just unavoidable. But in my mind, I think I'm writing for like Miss Yvette and her daughters. And then intellectually, I totally get that that may not be possible or realistic. Um, and that I'm writing for Black women of a certain age and from a certain place and background. And I love that too. I just never want to be writing for white people's consumption of us. And so as long as I'm not doing that, I, I make do with whomever finds me. Well, who do you, who do you write with? Like, who do you bounce ideas off of? Oh, 
That's a great question. You know, my friends who are don't write nearly as much, you know, publicly as I do, are, but they're hugely influential for my ability to have somebody. They are my real colleagues is what I like to say, right? These are the people that I have the like vulnerable creative conversations with. Because now there are ways to talk about your creative work with people who feel like they're in competition with you. And that can be helpful too. But there's like a, a point in the cycle of being creative where you just got to be super vulnerable because you're going to sound stupid. You're going to mispronounce words. You're going to write it poorly. You're going to have missed some major, you know, book or idea or something. And there's a huge amount of vulnerability in that. And I've got um, a group of homegirls who are all brilliant in their respective fields. And they read me and listen to my really nascent, you know, silly ideas. My editor, again, uh, you know, at the New Press, again, I think it so matters about diversity in publishing because I just do not know that I could have had a vulnerable conversation with an editor who didn't get like the fundamental truth of who I am. I bounce things off of her a lot. And then I've got, you know, my friends in my head that I read and I think I'm having a conversation with them. Um, A lot of them like older, uh, you know, older writers. I mean, I'm still always going to kind of revisit when I want to think about like prose or ideas. I, you know, I read people like Gloria Naylor or black feminists like Kimberly Crenshaw and Paula Gettings. But I also read a lot of young black women who I think for the record are killing it killing it. Like if I had had the chutzpah and the confidence of some of the young black girls that I see out there right now at their age, there's no telling who and what I would be. I read, you know, Ashley Ford and Morgan Jenkins and Zoe Osmussi, um, and I'm probably totally mispronouncing her name, this brilliant black queer leftist uh, writer. And so I read a lot of the young black girls. I, I, I love them. I love their confidence. They are so confident in their voice. And that is just amazing to see at people their age. And I take a lot of inspiration from them. I'm a real big fan of young black girls right now who I really think are just having a real good moment. I love the last chapter where you talk about uh, David Brooks and his. <laughs> that one was just fun for me, right? That was just so self-indulgent. Thank you. <laughs> his deep analysis of the gourmet sandwich. And, yes. you know, and so, you know, we have this, we do have this lack of, you know, black voices, black women voices at these elite publications mm-hmm. like the New Yorker. And, you know, and you point out the fact that well, another point that no one points out, you know, that, that to do that, you do need privilege and money mm-hmm. and time and access. Right. And even if you do have all of those things black voices are metered you mm-hmm. know like mm-hmm. how many can we have at once you that's know maybe right we just that's have one, right you know yes. so in 2020 is coming and we need those voices how do mm-hmm. we how do we solve this problem oh man uh uh you know frankly i, I think if i had like the the answer because it probably isn't a you know an answer just one but if i if there was one and i had it uh, we'd be having a whole other conversation but i think there are a few things i think and not all of it that can be done by black readers who who quite honestly have been doing that work for a long time which is one calling out those publications two creating counter you know publications and narratives writing our own stuff sharing our own stuff promoting our own thoughts and people and thinkers and our own intellectuals we do that we have online publications we struggle to try to keep our print publications alive we are out there nobody embraces sort of public intellectual work i think more than black folk do and i think we're killing it on that front but there's only so much we can do when like i talk about in the essay you can be 
a public intellectual in our society and literally never engage a black woman. And nobody's going to call you out on your, the bona fides of your intellectualism, right? David Brooks doesn't have to talk to, cite, read, or think about a black woman ever. And he will always have his job at the New York Times. And I use him as an archetype, right? As much as I like picking on David Brooks. He is just an archetype. And so honestly, until like our well-meaning white readers who love consuming black art and culture and politics so much when we do overcome all these hurdles to produce it, start pushing for the publications that rely on them as their core audience by saying, I feel like we're missing voices here until they do it. I mean, the reality of black life is very little moves at social institutions because black people ask it. Right. It has always been in our collaborations with non-black people and especially with white people who have made social institutions pay us attention and and care about our interests. So until those readers start doing it, I don't know um, what we black folk can do other than what we've already been doing. Well, Dr. Tressie McMillan Cottom, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Uh, This book is incredibly important and meaningful to me personally and I think everyone should read it. I'm certainly going to read it again and again. Thank Thank you. And that means if Black women pick it up and they are seen for any moment of time when they read it, that's it. That's my whole life. That's what I'm here to do. I mean, truly, that's that's it. I'm good. (laughs) So thank you for that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on iTunes and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please visit us on social media. That's at Electorat on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And let me know what you think. I really want to understand what you like and what you don't like and how we can be better. Thank you again for listening. And until next time, keep up the good fight.